0: Page 187 in our Pew Bibles. Gary Haugen, who is the founder of International Justice Mission, which is an excellent Christian organization working on behalf of victims of slavery and child and sex trafficking, once said, he said, in the face of tragedy, which he deals with all the time in that organization. He said, I've stopped asking where is God, and I've started asking where are God's people. Well, we're going to spend this week and next week in the book of Ruth, and in that book we see God's people showing up in the face of tragedy to be used by God to further God's purposes. The book of Ruth is one tightly knit, carefully crafted story, a short story in four scenes. And we've got two weeks before Easter to cover the four chapters of Ruth, and so we're going to take two chapters each week. This morning, I want to read the first half of the story, chapters one and two, and I'll pause along the way to make some comments as we read through it and and to point out some things that I don't want us to miss. And then at the end, I'll briefly offer some reflections on the story thus far. And then next week, we'll do the same thing with chapters three and four, okay? Okay. The story begins in the days when the judges ruled, and it ends with the genealogy of Israel's greatest king, David. That's why we find Ruth in our Bibles between the book of Judges, which recounts the dark, depressing period of Israel's history before Israel had a king when, as Judges says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So it's after Judges, and it's before the book of Samuel, which narrates how God raised up David finally, a man after God's own heart, to be Israel's king. And the story of Ruth revolves around a poor widow named Naomi, who uh, by the end of the story becomes the legal grandmother of a baby boy named Obed, whose grandson was King David. And in many ways, the plight of Naomi in this story mirrors that of the whole nation of Israel as the story moves from judges to King David, from famine to plenty, from emptiness to fullness. So let's begin with the story. In the, days of, or in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, that's the town and tribe of David as it later turns out, together with his wife and his sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech means God is my king, which the book of Samuel will tell us is how it was supposed to be. But the people didn't want God as their king by the book of Samuel, and so God gave them a human king. Well, Elimelech's wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malin and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. The powerful image of being barren and bereft and without life, and so had become the people of Israel too. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living, and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. This word kindness is a translation of the Hebrew word hesed, which is a key word in in this story. It means loving faithfulness to one's commitments, and it's a primary attribute of God. So Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, May the Lord show you kindness, hesed, as you have shown kindness, hesed, to your dad and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now we have to realize that in those days, in that culture, women were completely dependent on their husbands and their sons. Men had the legal rights and and the power and the strength in that society. And without a man to provide for you and to protect you, you are extremely vulnerable and, and likely doomed to a life of extreme poverty in that culture. And that's what Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are facing if they can't find new husbands to bear them. Sons. Then Naomi kissed them goodbye and and they wept aloud and and they said to her, we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So why does Naomi want to get rid of her daughters-in-law? Is it because she's solely concerned for their future well-being? Is it because they're a burden to her and she doesn't see any way to help them? She's clearly bereft and she's bitter and she's overwhelmed with her problems. Maybe it feels more overwhelming for her to have to worry about their problems too. Well, whatever her motives, we read, at this they wept aloud again and and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Notice the contrast. Orpah does the obvious thing. She, she goes home to her family where she has some hope of support and, and maybe they can help her find a new husband. But Ruth clings to Naomi. This word clings is the same word we see in Genesis 2 where a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves, clings to his wife. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. Naomi, whatever her reasons, really wants Ruth to go back home to Ruth's mother and to leave Naomi, her mother-in-law, alone. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to go back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. It's for good reason that these words of Ruth have become famous. Famous at weddings especially. They're beautiful words, aren't they? They express what hesed is. A commitment to the end in in life and in death. This is how God acts towards his children. And because Ruth has God's character, God's hesed, we'll see how God uses her as the story continues. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi isn't afraid to blame God for her troubles. She went away full. She came back empty. But the story isn't over yet. And I wonder how Ruth feels to be standing there beside Naomi, and Naomi says, I came back home empty. <laughs> Naomi is far from empty. She has Ruth, but, and Ruth has sacrificed everything for her, but, but Naomi can't e- even see yet what a blessing her daughter-in-law is. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So we have two destitute, hungry, empty widows arriving in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, at the start of the barley harvest. And that's at least a hopeful ending to a very dismal chapter. Scene 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz is a man of standing. Literally, the Hebrew reads that he's a mighty man of valor. He's a wealthy, respected, pillar of the community type guy. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Because God has compassion on the poor, his Old Testament law instructed landowners to let poor gleaners, as they were called, to come behind the reapers at harvest time and to pick up any stray stalks of of grain that the harvesters missed. In fact, the harvesters were even to make sure that they didn't do a thorough job as they harvested the crops so that there would be enough leftovers lying around to provide for the poor who would have to work hard to scrounge them up. Now, Ruth hopes to find favor with a landowner. And while this word can mean simply favor, often when it relates to a man and a woman, there's a note of charm or attraction. Um... May I be found charming and attractive in the eyes of some landlo- landowner. Could be an, a, another way to understand this. Add to this the fact that the narrator reiterates that Ruth is a Moabite. And this may stress that she's going out as a vulnerable foreigner. Moabites were Isra- were enemies of the people of Israel. But it may also hint at something that Moabite women were famous for. If you read the stories about Moabites in in Genesis and then again in Numbers, they, they had a reputation for seducing men, the women did. To say Moabite woman was almost like saying available woman in every sense of the word available. That's the reputation Ruth the Moabite would be starting with in Israel, and we'll have to see whether she lives up to it. So Ruth went out entered a field, and she began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, uh, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? Boaz notices Ruth right away. He asks about her. Is he just curious about this unfamiliar face in town, or or has she already caught his eye? Well, the overseer answered, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and, and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field, and she's remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Well, in addition to the obvious, Boaz learns three things about Ruth here. First, that she's a Moabite, a.k.a. she's an available young woman. Second, that she's with Naomi. She's not with a man, so she's single. And third, that she's a very hard worker, which was very attractive in a farm culture. So Boaz said to Ruth, he goes over to her right away, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the harvesters are working, and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jar the men have filled. Boaz is very keen to keep Ruth nearby. Why? So he can be generous toward her? She's desperately poor. So he can protect her. She's very vulnerable as a young foreign woman without a male protector in a godless time like the time of Judges. Or is it so Boaz can get to know her better that he wants to keep her nearby? Notice what else Boaz says two times. He says, stay with the women. Follow along after the women, not the men. By implication, I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. Watch the field, he says. Literally, keep your eyes on the field. Now, is this a poetic way of just encouraging her to stay in his field? Or or is he warning the Moabite woman to keep her eyes on the field and off the men? What's Boaz thinking? What are his motives? I hope you're comfortable with the ambiguity the the Old Testament stories are full of ambiguity. The storytellers relish in it. It adds interest and tension to, to the story as they tell it. Well, Boaz offers Ruth a generous gift here that she may drink from the water jars that the men provide. Gleaning was hard and, and thirsty work. And, and if you didn't have to go off and find your own drink of water, it would save you valuable time to, so you could get more, more work out of the day. There's also a theme in the Bible that men meet their brides by wells and water jars. Interesting. (laughs) We have a comment from the peanut gallery. (laughs) Well, at this, Ruth bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked Boaz, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Now, is Ruth just plain humble and grateful here? Or is she also probing Boaz because she's unsure about his motives just like we are? Notice we have um, that ambiguous word favor again. Why have I found favor in your eyes? Also this word why in Hebrew, why have I found favor is a strong word. Ruth really wants to know why. She's, um, She's probing to know Boaz's motives here. Why is he being so kind to her? He barely knows her. Well, Boaz's reply is beautiful, though his, uh, he doesn't really fully reveal his motives. I've been told about, or all about, what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland, and, and you came to live with a people you, you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to find refuge. Boaz has heard about Ruth, and evidently he's been um, deeply touched by her sacrificial, loyal love, her hesed toward Naomi. And Boaz recognizes that the Lord's heart is to provide shelter to anyone, even a foreign Moabitess, who would would come to the Lord and, and trust in the Lord. And we'll see that Ruth will experience this reward from the Lord in spades. She replies, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have reassured me and you've spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Ruth is again humble and and overflowing with gratefulness. She tells Boaz that he's spoken kindly to her. Literally, she says he's spoken to her heart. And that's another phrase which could just be about kindness, but it's also used of a man wooing a woman in the Old Testament. He spoke under her heart. Well, regardless of what she means by it, this is the first good thing, it's the first kind thing that's happened to Ruth in the story. And it's moved her deeply, just as Boaz has been moved by the stories of her generosity to Naomi. And I think it's safe to say, or at least to suspect, that there might be some kind of chemistry developing as we speak here between Boaz and Ruth. Notice also that Ruth, in a way, contradicts Boaz right here. Boaz wishes for her that the Lord repay her and richly reward her, kind of sidestepping the question of why Boaz is being so kind to Ruth. But Ruth counters, may I find favor in your eyes, not the Lord's, but yours, Boaz. (laughs) Again, she uses that word favor. Now, is Ruth... Hinting to Boaz that if God is going to reward her, it's going to be through Boaz. Well, the story continues. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Again, Boaz is generous at least. Perhaps he's pursuing a relationship too. Boaz or Ruth is no longer just a poor gleaner, uh, an outsider. She's been invited in to, to be a part of the harvest party. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain and she ate all she wanted and she had some left over. This may well have been the first full meal uh, Ruth has had in a long time, more than she could even eat. And as she got up afterwards to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out um, some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Boaz continues to shower Ruth with care and generosity. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she would gathered, extracting the grain from the, the stalks. That's what threshing was. And, and the grain measured to be about an ephah, which can be anywhere up to 30 to 50 pounds, a week or several weeks worth of food, a huge amount for one day's gleaning. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Ruth was no doubt hungry after her hard day's work, and and she could have eaten the leftovers from lunch on her way home, but her thoughts are on Naomi, and she continues to care for her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Again, the word for kindness is hesed, loving faithfulness to one's commitments. But it's not clear here who the he is Who continues is continuing to show kindness. Is it the Lord? Or is it Boaz? Or is it both? Is Naomi's view of God as the one who brought misfortune on her starting to change? Well, Naomi added, That man is our close relative. He's one of our family guardians. The family guardian or or kinsman redeemer, as he was often called, was a close relative, usually an uncle or or a cousin, who the Old Testament law encouraged to take legal and financial responsibility for his relatives, especially if they became needy. The kinsman redeemer, uh, redeemer was encouraged to redeem you if you became poor and you got into trouble. If you had to sell your land because of your poverty, the kinsman redeemer should buy it back to keep it in your family. If you had to sell your yourself into slavery because of your poverty, the kinsman redeemer should buy you back. God expected relatives to look out for one another in, in practical and, and in financial ways. And this could be costly for the redeemer because redemption is always costly. Then Ruth the Moabite said, Boaz, he, he even said to me, Stay with my workers, the Hebrew literally says, stay with my men until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to stay with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Now notice this little exchange. Boaz had clearly told Ruth to stay with his women. He doesn't... um, He doesn't seem to want this Moabite woman too close to his men. We get the implication. But Ruth tells Naomi that Boaz told her to stay with the men. And Naomi picks up on this and she says, no, you better stay with the women. Now what's going on here? Why does Ruth say she's to stay with the men? Is she teasing Naomi? Have she and Naomi had words before about Ruth the Moabite being too flirtatious with men? I I don't know. But Ruth obeys her mother-in-law, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. No men for her. So ends scene two. Since the story began, we've seen some sparks of hope light up Naomi and Ruth's dark prospects. as the first good things happened to them, thanks to Boaz. We've also seen Ruth prove herself to be a virtuous woman, showing incredible Hesed toward Naomi, a great risk to herself. But we've had some lingering questions about whether Ruth is in fact a stereotypical Moabite woman. We've also met Boaz, who we know is an upstanding pillar of his community, and and he's proved to be generous and compassionate and kind-hearted. He shows Hesed. Though we're not totally clear on what all of his motives are in being so kind to Ruth. But that's real life, isn't it? We're all a confusing mixture of motives. And the Hebrew storyteller in his or her art uh, drops these little hints to paint these characters as real people. So what do we learn from this story? Well, we haven't seen the Lord in the story yet, at least not firsthand. We've heard at the beginning of the story that that he came to the aid of his people in providing them food. Naomi has also attributed uh, attributed her troubles to the Lord. She's saying that it's God's fault that she went out full and pleasant and she came back empty and bitter. We've also seen Boaz bless Ruth, wishing on her in these beautiful, uh, touching words, uh, a shelter and and reward from the Lord under whose wings this Gentile foreigner has found shelter. But Ruth seems to be more pragmatic. She just hopes to continue to find favor in Boaz's eyes. Then finally, there's that curious uh, verse in chapter 2, verse 3, where the narrator says, it just so happened that Ruth wound up gleaning in the field of Boaz. No credit's given to God for that, but it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Although God may be quietly hidden in the story so far during this dark, wicked period of the judges when a young woman like Ruth has to be fearful for her safety, yet God has his people and his people have God's name on their lips and they're faithfully living out his law. Boaz and Ruth in particular walk in God's commands and they exhibit God's character. Boaz obeys the commands about gleaning and more than that, he shows God's heart of of generous compassion for the poor, which which motivated those commands. He goes above and beyond to provide for and to protect for Ruth, um, who's the very sort of poor and vulnerable widow and foreigner that those laws were put in place to protect and take care of. Whatever other motives Boaz may have, he beautifully demonstrates the hesed and the, the compassionate generosity of God. Boaz is a godly man. He's he's come to develop God's heart and God's character. And Boaz shows us all who, uh, or how, those who have wealth and influence are to treat those who do not. And all the more so if they're related to us. And then there's Ruth. Moabite though she may be, she is hesed incarnated. She sticks faithfully by the side of her needy, grief-stricken mother-in-law. She leaves the security of Moab behind to to walk headlong into a life of hopeless poverty and vulnerable destitution. Ruth risks everything. She she gives up everything for the sake of her mother-in-law, just like God does for us. So we have Boaz on the one hand, rich, powerful, respected, male. And we have Ruth on the other. Poor, vulnerable, a despised foreigner, female. Both following God's ways and living out God's character in the ways that are open to them, given their state and status in life. It proves that anyone can live for God and display God's character. From the high society wealthy to the slum-dwelling poor. God can use them both. As Gary Haugen said, in the face of tragedy, I've stopped asking where is God and I've started asking where are God's people? And so we close this week with our key biblical truth for the book of Ruth. God can use people who share his character to accomplish his good purposes. And next week we'll see what in Naomi's case in Israel's case those good purposes are. then to save me this I read and in my heart I find a need of him to be my Savior that he would leave his place on high and come for sinful. for many. It's strange and so did I Before I knew my Savior My Savior loves, my Savior lives My Savior's always there for me My God, He was